Alright, so we are in chapter 9 now of Zechariah, and what I'm going to do tonight as we go through this chapter, um, I'm going to, of course, you know, show you what this chapter is all about, what it meant back then, what it means for us today, but also, another thing I'm going to do... Uh, dispensationalists, and really not even just dispensationalists, just many people who preach false doctrine. I'm going to show you some just messed up tactics that people use to try to make the Bible teach some things that it does not. And what I'm going to do right now, look at verse 9 before we start at the beginning of this chapter, okay? Because here's there's really several things that false teachers do, but this chapter right here, it's real easy for someone to get up and convince you that they know the book of Zechariah and that they've studied it. They know what's going on because they can, they can take you to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, riding upon an ass and upon the colt, the foal of an ass. Now, what is that verse about? Okay, Anybody? Palm Sunday, all right, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know? How did we figure out that that was it? Well, because in the Bible, when Jesus went through there, it directly referenced this passage right here. So there is no doubt that this verse was fulfilled there in, uh, at Jesus' triumphal entry. However, we need to ask ourselves the question now, so what about the rest of this chapter? What about the rest of this chapter? When was it fulfilled? Did Jesus fulfill it? I think anybody would admit none of the rest of this chapter was fulfilled. So now we need to ask ourselves the question, why was it not fulfilled? And I find this interesting because at Jesus' triumphal entry, after he goes and after he does some face-ripping preaching, he makes a statement in there that people have taken a statement that Jesus made and they have, they have created a biblical event out of a statement that he made in there that just does not exist. But it's kind of a, a vague statement where you're like, what's he even talking about? And they have attached it to one of their mythical events that's never going to come. And, it, and when you actually study all of Zechariah chapter 9, and then you look at it in light of what happened in the New Testament, all of a sudden you find out, you know, these people have nothing. You know, this is this really is stupid. And we're seeing when it comes to Israel, people are getting more and more desperate when it comes to their teaching on it because we are taking away everything they've got. And they can't, you know, anything that's in Genesis, we've destroyed with Galatians 3 and 4. I mean, Galatians 3 and 4, it's like kryptonite to Superman. They will not go near. I have been, I have been just, I mean, harassing these people, just doing whatever I can to get them expound on Galatians 3 and 4, and they won't do it. They will not do it. And so what do they do? They go to vague passages, and then they attach events that the Bible never talks about. And so as we go through this, I'll, I'll show this to you. So it's important, though, uh, you know, in order to understand this chapter, that we understand we are, about to, we are seeing right now what would have been, okay, Earlier in the book, we saw a promise that the temple would be built and finished in the life of Zerubbabel. And after the temple was finished and after God dwelt among them again, it was his will that they follow the Lord. We see 
multiple times in, the, in this book where God was telling them, you know, he, he wanted them to get away from those sins they were doing. He wanted them to stop the stealing. He wanted them to stop oppressing uh, the widows. There was all these things he told them not to do. And he told them, you need to follow me. God, and so he's telling them, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to, I'm going to let your temple be rebuilt. I'm going to dwell among you. I'm going to do all these things, but I need you to do some things. Okay. Fast forward to the book of Malachi. Okay. The very next book we went through Malachi a while back. You might remember, what did I call the book of Malachi? The book of Malachi was Israel's report card and they failed big time. Okay. They failed. They did not do the things that God told them to do after God did the things that he said he would do. They didn't do it. And so because of that, there's many other things that God said he would do in this book. If they would do these other things, well, those things never got done because they never did what they were supposed to do. And so remember chapter six, verse 15. This is the key verse in Zechariah. You might want to underline this one. In case some rucktard ever pulls some weird verse out of Zechariah to say that this has got to happen, this has got to be fulfilled, you can go to Zechariah 6.15 and say, And they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord, and ye shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. And this shall come to pass if ye will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Okay? That's real specific there. Okay? That proves we've got a condition here. And we know they didn't do it. And if they want to argue about whether they did it or not, just go to the book of Malachi. And you'll see that they didn't. So, if they would have followed the Lord, I believe the Messiah would have come and defeated their enemies and set up his kingdom. All these things we're about to read here would have come to pass. And so, in chapter 8, we see a transition from what God guaranteed would happen to what could happen if they followed the Lord. Because... God talked about how he was going to, they were going to build that temple and he was going to dwell among them. That's when he said the verse that Sam gets all excited about that he thinks is something in the future where it says, you know, 10 men shall take, you know, uh, it says, um, yeah, thus saith the Lord of hosts in those days, it shall come to pass that 10 men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew saying, we will go with you for we have heard that God is with you. Okay? So God's promising all these good things. They would be the envy of the world. They would be ones that people were coming to again. Like had happened before, remember in Solomon's day? People would travel around. They would come to see all that God had done in Israel. And God's basically promising them that kind of thing again. But they did not follow the Lord. So now let's start reading in verse 1. Because here what we're seeing, when you read this, you're just going to be like, what does this even mean? It names a lot of nations. It's talking about all these things God's going to do to them. And understand this, that while we read this, I'm not going to get up here and pretend I know all the little details of these nations and why God was going to punish them. But I can promise you this, in Israel's day, when Zechariah told this to the people, they understood this. They understood the political situation of that day in detail while we don't. And so all of this would have made sense to them in that day. Today, we, I really can't tell you. And you know, it really doesn't matter because Israel never followed the Lord. So I don't need to go to this chapter and figure out how all this stuff is going to play out. 
It didn't play out. Israel didn't follow the Lord. But yet we have verse 9 where we know that did play out. Why did verse 9 play out, but none of the other things played out? Okay, And I'll, I'll answer that question uh, later in this message. Look what it says. The, bur- uh, the burden of the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrach and Damascus shall be the rest thereof, when the eyes of man, as of all the tribes of Israel, shall be toward the Lord. And Hamath also shall border thereby, Tyrus and Zidon, though it be very wise. And Tyrus did build herself... Uh, a stronghold and heaped up silver as the dust and fine gold as mire out of the streets. Um, behold, the Lord will cast her out and he will smite her power in the sea and she shall be devoured with fire. Ashkelon shall see it in fear. Gaza also shall see it and be very sorrowful. And Ekron for her expectation shall be ashamed and the king shall perish from Gaza and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited and a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines, and I will take away his blood out of his mouth and his abominations from between his teeth. Uh, but he that remaineth, even he shall be for our God, and he shall be as a governor in Judah and Ekron as a Jebusite. And I will encamp about mine house because of the army, because of him that passeth by, and because of him that returneth. And no oppressor shall pass through them any more, for now I have seen with my eyes. So when we read that, said he's... He's naming a lot of different places. We don't know the details of all these places. In fact, some of these places, if you look them up in the Bible, if you just do a search for them, the only time they're even mentioned in the Bible is right here. So it's like, what are we supposed to do with this? Hey, once again, we don't need to do anything with it because this never happened. Israel didn't do what they were supposed to do. So, you know, it, it's, if, you, if you listen to some theologian try to go and tell you how all these things got to happen... He's, he's just going to make up stuff. Well, that land to talk about right there is, you know, Syria or something. Whatever country we're wanting to go to war with right now, you know, this, you know, we've got to go and fight Syria for this prophecy to be fulfilled. This will help bring on the rapture, you know. And then Christians are like, yeah, kill Muslims, kill me. You know, you know, that, that's, how, that's how they get them on this stuff. Okay, that's just, that's just foolish. That is not what this is about. And so, you know, one thing we need to understand, too, one major difference between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy is Old Testament prophecy was dependent on God coming through and on man coming through. Now get this, okay? I'm going to say this again. Old Testament prophecy was dependent on God doing his part and man doing their part. And we see, we're seeing that here in Zechariah. God's telling them, this will come to pass if you will do this. That's how many Old Testament prophecies work. But in the New Testament, okay, New Testament prophecy. Now, why is Old Testament prophecy dependent on man? Well, it was actually dependent on what Israel did because the covenant was between God and Israel. So New Testament prophecy, it is dependent on God coming through and the one who he made the covenant with, Jesus Christ coming through. Okay, because this is what the dispensationalists will do. Well, if you're saying that those Old Testament prophecies aren't going to come to pass, well, how do we know the New Testament prophecies are going to come to pass? I'll tell you why. Because New Testament prophecies coming to pass are not dependent on us. They are dependent on Jesus Christ doing his part. And that's pretty safe to say that he's going to come through. Okay, and that is the major difference. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7. Remember that. Whenever you're dealing with these 
what's a nice word I can say that uh, numbskulls that are out there that are just so in the tank for Israel they're willing to twist the scriptures to get find something good for them. But it says in uh, Hebrews eight seven for if the first covenant had been faultless then should no place have been found for the second for finding fault with them. He saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the first covenant, or to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them out of the land, to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. So, well, it says right there that that new covenant is with Israel and with Judah. You're saying it's with Jesus Christ. Well, guess where Jesus came from? Jesus came from Israel. Jesus came from the house of Judah. And so what, because that, that covenant was with him, all we now have to do to be a part of the house of Israel and the house of Judah is be in Christ. That's what we've got to do. So we don't need to worry about the New, the New Testament prophecies that we have. They're going to come to pass. Okay? Revelation is going to come to pass. But the things that we see, some of the things we see in Zechariah are not going to come to pass. You're saying God's a liar. No, I'd be saying he was a liar if I said they were going to come to pass because he said they would only come to pass if they would do certain things and they didn't do those things. So how could they come to pass? They're the ones calling God a liar. That's, that's the truth of it. So when we look at Old Testament prophecy, there are, there are many things that Jesus fulfilled to the letter, like verse 9, but there are other things in prophecy that no one can figure out how it was fulfilled. And the reason for that is because it wasn't fulfilled. All of chapter 9 was not fulfilled. Okay? The parts that weren't fulfilled was because Israel didn't do their part. But notice, it didn't stop Jesus from doing his part. Say, why did Jesus even do the triumphal entry? You know, if it was too late, they weren't obeying anyway. You know why? It was just God showing that I'm doing my part. God did his part when it came to the old covenant. God did all the things that he promised that he would do, but Israel did none of the things that they were supposed to do. But it didn't stop God from continuing to just do the right thing. So we do see things in Zechariah that Jesus fulfilled and many other Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled to the letter. But the the dispensationalists, they never go through the rest of the chapter. They won't go there. They'll cherry pick... Yeah, verse 9 is easy. We know that one was fulfilled. Okay, but there's 17 verses in Zechariah chapter 9. You tell me what the rest of those verses mean. They've got nothing. They have absolutely nothing. And it's because uh, they just have a uh, messed up template when it comes to studying the scriptures. They're doing it through the lens of dispensationalism instead of replacement theology like the Bible actually teaches. So they can't get these things right. And they just end up looking stupid with some of the things that they end up doing with these passages. So what we're about, so these things we're reading, they would be very difficult for us to understand because there isn't a whole lot of Bible explaining the world stage at that time. There's just, there's not much, but it would have made perfect sense to them back then. And we've always got to look at that whenever you're reading the scriptures Whenever you're studying the scriptures, any scripture at all, one thing you should always keep in mind, the first thing you should try to figure out when studying the scriptures is what did this mean to the people that it was written to? That's what you've got to take into consideration. And then if you're reading something, oh, let's say from 
you know, first and second Peter, when he just mentions the angels that sinned. Okay, well, what was that sin that they did exactly? I don't know, Peter didn't say. But obviously, the people he was writing to knew what he was talking about. Now, does that give me permission to invent a doctrine about the angel sinning? Does that give me the right now to go to the book of Enoch and talk about the 20 angels that came down and cohabited with the daughters of men and all that stuff? Does it give me the right? Well, it mentions angels that sinned. Okay, but it doesn't tell us what the sin was. It doesn't tell us when it happened. Okay, so the thing is, what, what, well, what are we supposed to get from it? Well, we know there's some angels that sinned that God reserved in chains of, you know, of destruction or until, until judgment day. And if God punished them, he's going to punish us too. That's what Peter was trying to teach. If God punished angels, you better believe he's going to punish you too. That's what you're supposed to get from the passage. You don't need to know for sure what the angels were that sinned and what happened exactly. It's the same thing that they do when they read uh, with, with their Abraham's bosom doctrine. You know, next time they bring that up, ask them, show me a verse in the Bible. Show me any place in the Bible where it explains a good hell and a bad hell. Explain, explain that. And they'll usually go to the story of a rich man and Lazarus. Okay, but that doesn't explain a good compartment and a bad compartment. I can show you other places in the Bible where you can, you know, heaven and hell can see each other. So now you're going to go and you're going to tell me that... You know, Abraham's bosom is, was not Abraham's bosom, but it was actually good hell. And you're going to tell, and, and, and they will use verses here and there from the Bible to teach a Catholic doctrine from the book of Nicodemus. This, and they'll talk about how Jesus went to good hell, how he preached to the souls that were there. And how he went and led captivity captive other all quotes directly from the book of Nicodemus. They'll say he led captivity captive. That was him taking the souls of the saints out of hell. Can you please show me where the Bible teaches that? Yeah, Ephesians. He led captivity captive. Oh, really? Is that what that's talking about in Ephesians? Actually, because I don't see any references to lost souls there. In Ephesians, I do see where there were ordinances. There were things that were against us that were keeping us from salvation. Things that were conquering us, things that were condemning us, that Jesus defeated on the cross. Do you see how they'll do it? They'll take a verse here, they'll take a verse there. There's no story, there's no place in the Bible where it teaches what you're talking about. You have, you have taken a story from an extra biblical book. And that's not even extra biblical. Right? That's too nice to call it that. You have taken a Catholic fairy tale. And you have found individual verses by themselves in the Bible that kind of fit that. Do you realize how bad that is? You know, what kind of, that is the most messed up type of Bible study that you can do, but yet this kind of trash is ingrained in the minds of people today. Because they don't study the Scriptures. They're reading all... And listen, the book of Enoch's entertaining. The Gospel of Nicodemus is entertaining. It's a cool story. But you know what? So is Superman. But to say that this stuff's Bible is just absolutely ridiculous. And you know what else is a fairy tale? Is the restoration of physical Israel. It's a fairy tale. They're all looking for this day when national Israel comes back and all the Jews are getting saved. It is made up. There is no place in the Bible. There is, listen, and li listen there are individual verses that they use. 
Like, and so all Israel shall be saved. Okay. Explain to me now how, and so all Israel shall be saved is a story of, you know, or show me in the Bible a story where Jesus Christ returns to the earth, and when he returns to the earth, all of a sudden, all the Jews are seeing him, and they're all getting saved. Okay? Show me a passage that explains all of that in detail. Now, here's what they'll do. They will jump all over the place in the scriptures. There is no one passage explaining all that. What they do, they take a verse here, they take a verse there, because they've already decided that that fairy tale is true. They have decided this is going to happen. This fairy tale that some dispensationalist came up with is going to happen, or probably some Jew came up with. This is going to happen, and now we've got to find scriptures that fit it. And while there's no single place in the Bible that explains this event, if you take a verse here and a verse there, you can make it kind of look like that. As long as you ignore the context of those passages, which is something that everybody does. And that, that's wrong. You are not, you are not allowed to do that with scriptures, but that is exactly what these people are doing. So, they have decided, okay, they have decided there's going to be a bunch of Jews that get saved in the future. And Israel's going to be restored. They have decided that. If, it, if you have decided in your mind it is a fact that this is going to happen, you might find a verse or two here or there that you could say, this is what that event's talking about. But you could do the same thing, too, if you decide you know, that angels are coming and they're cohabiting with the daughters of men. If you decided that's an event, all right, you decided that the story that you read in the book of Enoch is true, you can find some verses here and there, if you ignore the context, that might look like, okay, here's an example where that's talking about that. Do you all see that? And there's a lot of examples like that that I can give. Okay? Because I've, you know, I've read most of those other books just purely for entertainment. You know, some people read comic books. You know, that, you know I, uh, I read apocryphal books. I find some of them entertaining. And it's funny how they'll do... I, I, I've, I've seen how they'll do that. How they'll take a verse here. Alright, for example... You know, y'all probably don't know the story in the Bible about the man who found all like the half um, men, like half horse, like these centaurs and uh, something straight out of Chronicles of Narnia. Y'all don't know where that story is, do you? Well, if, you go, if you're reading the book of Genesis, I don't remember where it's at. It talks about, it mentions a man named Ana, and it mentions how he was the one that found the mules in the wilderness or something like that. That's all it says. Okay, what is that, all right, you know? Well, isn't a mule like a cross between a horse and a donkey? Well, what if it's a cross between a horse and a human, too? All right, so if I want that story I read from the book of Jasher to be true, I could use that verse, couldn't I? And that is exactly what they do in the book of Jasher. It tells a story like that where they're finding all these, like, half-human, half-animal creatures, and it was Ana that found them. And it's like, oh man, well the Bible does mention it, Ana. That's got to be true now. And I'm sure the Ruckmanites would be all over that story in a, in a heartbeat. But folks, you realize how ridiculous that is? Do you realize how dishonest with the scriptures that is? And that type of junk is the exact same thing these people are doing with Israel. And I'm going to show you that uh, as we go through this. So let's see how, you know, how were they doing when the Messiah came? 
All right. Because no, uh, let's look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. Okay, so it says, The burden of the word of the Lord, verse 1 of Zechariah 9, in the land of Hadrach and Damascus shall be the rest thereof, when the eyes of man, as of all the tribes of Israel, shall be toward the Lord. Okay? Now, I don't see anywhere in the Bible where that was happening, but I believe if Israel would have done their part, they would have been that shining light in the world that would have helped lead many to righteousness, but they didn't do it. And notice what Jesus said to them, and listen, this is right after his triumphal entry. His triumphal entry is in Matthew chapter 21, but the events we read about in the next two chapters are all connected to that. He goes in there, and when he goes into the temple, remember how he cleans house in the temple? He's driving people out with a whip, and then he goes and he preaches to them in Matthew chapter 23. And in Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, notice what he said, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Now, wait a minute. I thought what was supposed to happen is supposed, there was supposed to be ten men taking hold of him, the skirt of him that was a Jew, saying, We have heard that the Lord is with you. Wanting to go to Jerusalem with them. It looks like in the book of Zechariah, that God wanted the Jews being a shining example, and so people would come to them wanting to go to the Lord. But what does the Bible say? Jesus, when he came to earth, he said, you're shutting up the kingdom. You're not, letting, you're not even going in yourself, and you're not letting other people go in. And we see during that time how they were with the Samaritans. Did God not love the Samaritans too? You better believe he did. We see how they were with the publicans and the sinners and the harlots and all those people like that. But you had these self-righteous Pharisees, the Jews, they were shutting up the kingdom. They were doing the exact opposite of what God had told them to do in Zechariah 9. What else did he tell them? Ye devour widows' houses. We don't have time to go through Matthew 23, but many of the things that Jesus calls them out for in Matthew 23 is what he told them not to do. In the book of Zechariah. And so they know about this prophecy in Zechariah about their king coming, riding upon a colt, the fall of an ass. They knew about that. And I, and I, I believe that's why they were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. They knew what was going on, but when he came in, he didn't do what they thought he was going to do. They're thinking, all right, it's Zechariah 9 time. He's about ready to clean house, he's about ready to take out our enemies. But whose house did he end up cleaning? He ended up cleaning his house. He ended up running them out. Why? Because they didn't do what they were supposed to do. Jesus had said this to them in Matthew 23, the very day of his triumphal entry prophesied of in Zechariah 9. We have to connect that because there's a verse in Matthew 23 that the pro-Israel people are taking and they don't realize the context. Why did Jesus make this statement? Because it does seem like kind of a vague statement that he made. And it's like, and they're, and they're connecting it to their, you know, mythical event, their fairy tale that, you know, came, came from a Jew. And it's not right. It's because they don't understand what was going on. They don't understand the prophecy that was being fulfilled during that time. They don't understand the Old Testament. They don't understand Bible prophecy. So we'll jump down to verse 9. So verse 8, you know, up, up to verse 8 is where he's talking about how he's going to deal with all these people, how he's going to do all these things. And so verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just having salvation, lowly riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So whenever people tell you 
If you say, well, what's, what happened there, or what's written there in Zechariah is never going to happen. Like, oh, really? You think verse 9 happened? Well, yeah, that, that did happen. But then you need to force them to tell you when did verses 1 through 8 happen. When did, when did those things happen? They never happened, folks. And they can't even make up a story of what happened then. And so what happened instead? So now when Jesus Christ comes in, this is supposed to be a good thing. This is supposed to be a time when he's about ready to take care of their enemies. But we see in Matthew 21, uh, verses 12 through 13, he ends up cleaning house there instead. Let's go ahead and let's go ahead and look at that real quick. Matthew 21 and verse 12. It says, And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all of them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house should be called a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Did he not specify not stealing in Zechariah quite a bit? That was one of the main things that he, one of the main sins that he calls them out for is their stealing. That he called on them to not do anymore. The stealing was one of the things that one of the, the highlighted sins that got them into Babylonian captivity. And so when we looked a couple weeks ago, when he was talking about, did you learn your lesson? Did you learn your lesson? Are you not going to steal? And then we can find out, well, did they do that? Did they follow that? No, because when Jesus goes into the temple, what does he call them out for? Making it into a den of thieves. They did not do what God had told them to do. It's very important that we understand these things. People today, they don't understand the Babylonian captivity. You know, the, the, you know, your typical Baptist today, they don't even understand that the regathering of Israel already happened. That he already restored them to the land. They already rebuilt the temple. He already dwelt among them again. But then they, once again, they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And they rejected the Messiah when he showed up. So, you know, these stories aren't in the Bible just for filler. Okay, they're there for a reason. They're there to bring to closure the things that were talked about in the Old Testament because, you know, people are going to be wondering, hey, when's Zechariah 9 going to be fulfilled? Uh, it's not going to be fulfilled. I told you all not to steal, and here I show up, and I go through, and you've made my house into a den of thieves. Why would I defeat your enemies right now? You didn't do what I told you to do. So he says in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. He's going on with more things he's going to do, or he would have done. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, from river even to the ends of the earth. And as for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit, wherein is no water. Turn you to the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee. When I have bent Judah for me, filled the bow with Ephraim, <clears throat> and raised up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece, and made thee as the sword of a mighty man. And the Lord shall be seen over them, and his arrow shall go forth as a lightning. And the Lord God shall blow the trumpet, and shall go with whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts shall defend them, and they shall devour and subdue with sling stones. And they shall drink and make a noise as through wine. And they shall be filled like bowels, and as the corners of the altar. When did any of this happen? Okay, we, we know in verse 9 happened. But nobody in the world would say anything that even resembles this happened during Jesus' day. 
and you have to be able to answer the question, why? Okay? Why didn't these things happen during Jesus' day? Because Israel didn't do what they were supposed to do. Verse 16, notice this. Okay, and this is key, folks. You've got to connect Zechariah 9 with his triumphal entry. Because that's when that was fulfilled. The New Testament made it a point to specify this. It says, And the Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be as the stones of a crown lifted up as an ensign upon his hand. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Corn shall make the young men cheerful and new wine the maids. Did Israel get saved in the day of his triumphal entry? No, they did not. Now, verse 9, very clear. We know verse 9 happened. We're in the same day. It says the Lord will save them in that day. He didn't do it. Why? Because there was a condition. And I believe Israel perfectly understood this passage in Jesus' day, but they did miss one thing. And that was the fact that they were sinners just like the rest of the world. Look at verse, because look what, look what it said in verse 9. Notice in verse 16, and God shall save them in that day. Okay? Look, look at verse 9 of Matthew 21. And this is at his triumphal entry. This is Jesus doing his part in Zechariah 9, 9. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, saying, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Now, what does that term Hosanna mean? That, that term Hosanna, it is a term of praise. But you know what it means? It means Oh, save or save us. That's what that means. So Jesus is riding through and the multitudes are crying out, Hosanna, oh, save, save us. And so did they all get saved when they did that? Wait a minute, I thought for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why didn't all those people get saved in that day? I'll tell you why. Because they weren't shouting for salvation from their sins. They were shouting for salvation from their enemies. They're like, all right, it's Zechariah 9-9 time. He's going to come and he's going to clean house out there. He's going to defeat the Romans. He's going to defeat all our enemies, all these people we hate. That we've been you know, talking about these prophesies about how the Messiah is going to do this to them. Hey, it's time. He's going to do these things to us. So when they're saying Hosanna, when they're, when they're saying save us, they're not talking about save us from our sins. No, save us from our enemies. They're our problem, but they were never the problem. Listen, God proved over and over again that enemies were not a problem for them as long as God was on their side. God regularly defeated all their enemies with no help from them. So the Romans weren't a problem for God. He could have taken care of them like that. They needed to be saved from their sins. But they, isn't that what they kept missing? Isn't that what they missed when John the Baptist preached repentance to them? We have Abraham as our father. We're good. Okay. This is what they constantly missed and what they're still missing to this day. So when Jesus went through and tried to clean house, he ended up getting completely rejected. He ends up, you know, and he ends his preaching to them with this very interesting verse that people go crazy with. The people attached to their fairy tale that they decided is true. And they need Bible to prove it. 
But there is no place in the Bible where you can like find this story or you can find detailed, uh, you know, a, you know, detailed list of things that are going to happen. No, somebody decided these things are going to happen in the future somewhere, and they need a verse to prove it. And so they've taken this one because it's it's vague for most people. Most people will look at this and be like, I don't know what that's talking about. So the Rockmanites people are like, that. okay, we'll take it and we'll attach it to one of our fairy tales. But now let's look at this verse in light of what we've read from Zechariah and showing that this passage here is connected with his triumphal entry. So look at verse 37. This is how he ends this sermon to him. So I know this is two chapters later. And dispensationalists, they, they can only focus on one verse at a time. They can't look at whole passages. But this is all part of the same event. This is after Jesus has gone through and he's clean house with the people that were expecting him to come and clean the clocks of their enemies. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings? And ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Here we go. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, so ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. What's that? That's, that's what they attach their fairy tale event to. There's a day coming when Israel's going to say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. They're going to get saved, you know, and there's going to be this mass revival of Jews that's out there. And they will use this verse to prove this is talking about something in the future. Okay? Now, there's, for you to take verse 39... And create a whole new event like that is ridiculous. Okay? But you got to understand, they've already decided this event's going to happen. And so they will use, and so all Israel shall be saved. And, they, and they've made that into an event in the future. Instead of what it actually is, is showing how they will be saved. Okay? And I'll, I'll look, we'll look at that in a little bit. But what is this talking about? Is this a future prophecy about all Israel being saved? Or is this a conditional statement for those who would believe on him? Okay, Because notice I said, you should not see me henceforth. Well, wait a minute. They saw him when he was on the cross, didn't they? So what was he talking about here? He said, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now, remember, and his triumphal entry. Remember what they were all saying? Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now, why is Jesus looking for him to say that? They just said it. They all just said these very words to Jesus. Why is he telling them that they, you know, you're not going to see me until you say that again? We just said it. And I already showed you how obviously what was in their heart wasn't what God was looking for. So even though the words came out of their mouth, their heart definitely wasn't in the right place. They were looking for the wrong thing. What does this mean? Well, look at 2 Corinthians 3.13. It says, And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. They're wanting to put the veil back up in the future, though. But it says, But even unto this day, when Moses has read, the veil is upon their heart. 
Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now, they have decided, again, this is part of their future mythical event. But what's this talking about here? It's just saying, when they will turn to the Lord, the veil will be taken away. When they'll believe on him, it'll be taken away. You understand that? This isn't talking about a future event for all Israel. This applies right now. The Jews, they have a veil over their heart. But if they will turn to the Lord, if they will believe on Christ, the veil will be taken away. That's what that's talking about right there. This is conditional, just like Romans 10, 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God is raised from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Well, it says thou shalt be saved. It means everybody's going to get saved. Thou shalt be saved. Well, no, it says if thou shalt confess with thy mouth. There's a condition there. Romans eleven twenty three. This is the verse they all want to ignore. They love Romans eleven twenty six, but they all ignore Romans eleven twenty three, where it says, And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. This isn't talking about a future event. The Apostle Paul is talking about the present. He said, I'm an Israelite. He he had gotten saved, and God, he was and God's able to save them right now, if they abide not still in unbelief, and so all Israel shall be saved. Okay, not a future event right now. Why? Because out of Zion shall come a deliverer that shall turn ungodliness away from Jacob. Already happened. I proved over and over again. Acts 3 proves that already happened. The deliverer came. He died on a cross. His name was Jesus. Already done. Already fulfilled. Okay, all Israel will be saved when they, by not still in unbelief. Okay, and that applies today. Individuals, John 3, 3 says, Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Job Remember what Job's in 1926, he said, And though after my skins, worm destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. You know what Jesus said, was talking about when he said, Ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. He's saying, You're not going to see me till you believe on me. And I, I believe the Jews will never, ever see him until they are born again. And how do you get born again? It's who's, John 3 is where we get the term born again. Jesus talking to a Jew. What did he say to that Jew? He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What Jesus is telling, he's telling these Jews, he says, listen, your house is left unto you desolate. I'm done with you as a, as a nation I'm done with you as a physical people. I'm done with your temple. Okay? You destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again. And you know what? You're not going to see me again until you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. He's just basically telling them there, you're not, you got to believe on me. Until you believe on me, I'm done with you. And God is done with the Jews as far as in a good way. They've still got some major punishment coming their way. But they get out of that if they would just believe on Christ. And they will never see him 
until they are born again. That's what that verse is talking about. Imagine just the liberty people are taking with scriptures to just take that verse and attach that. Because I don't see anywhere where Jesus talked about, you know, all of Israel just getting saved all at once. I don't see that. That clown that made that video debunking Marching to Zion and Pastor Anderson, I, I was, it was so funny. I was so glad he did this. When Pastor Anderson was um, debunking the guy's debunking, it was the funniest thing because um, he got to that part where that guy said, like, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. You know, and, then, and he just quoted that verse. And then Pastor Anderson, he's like, you know, responded to each thing. He just gets done. He's like, okay. <laughs> so I was like, yes. I, they, they do that all the time. They'll go to that verse. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him. That's a Jews. Well, yeah, that's right. That is a Jews. Yeah, but then it says, and all the tribes of the earth shall wail because of him, or mourn because of him. I don't see all Israel getting saved there. Oh, that's them mourning. That's that godly sorrow that worketh repentance. Really? Because actually, and we're gonna, we'll are gonna we be looking in more into that passage later. Because that's in Zechariah. But, folks, they're mourning because they're in trouble. They're making a mourning as they did in Megiddo in the Valley of Hadad-Rimen or whatever. That was a day of great mourning and great sorrow because their king died in that day. And that day when Jesus Christ returns in the clouds, they are going to be in great mourning during that time because they know they're in trouble. It doesn't say anything about them getting saved. It says they're mourning, they're wailing. And they've just decided, nope, that's them all getting saved. You know why they think that? Because they think salvation is when a bunch of people come down to an altar in a camp meeting wailing their brains out. That's what they think it is. They think it's this emotional experience. So they see a bunch of Jews all wailing and they think they're all getting saved. Well, if that's the case, they're all getting saved every week when they go to the wailing wall. You know, wailing then, banging their head. I mean, boy, they're so repentant, they're banging their head against the wall. Think, think about that for a minute. It's just, it's ridiculous. People have accepted a fairy tale that is never going to happen, and they are desperate to find any scripture they can, and to just, to use that verse in that way is so irresponsible with the scriptures, it, I find it very revolting. And you know what? It proves they are desperate. It's stubbornness. It is stubbornness. And let me tell you about this kind of, this type of stubbornness, it, I, I believe God is messing with the minds of these people that are being stubborn. Just like King Saul went crazy because of his stubbornness, I believe pastors today all over the United States are literally losing their minds. They cannot, I mean, listening to them trying to expound on the scriptures is embarrassing. You know, because they've just rejected God's word. They're stubborn. God's not going to show them anything. God's not going to use them anymore until they repent. And they better do it. So what we read in Zechariah 9, it was conditional upon them obeying the Lord and accepting Messiah. Verse 9 is the only thing that happened because that was the one thing God said he would do. And I think Jesus did, showing, I did my part. You definitely didn't do your part. You've made my house into a den of thieves. I called you out for that hundreds of years ago. And you did nothing. And you said you were going to do it right, but you didn't. The rest was up to them. 
And they failed. And Israel will never see him again in the Matthew 23, 39 way. There will be some individuals here and there that do. They're not all reprobate. But as a nation, they, they're never, they're never going to see him again until they, until they believe on him. Otherwise, they're not going to see him again until he comes with the clouds. And every eye sees him. And they're going to be mourning with the rest of the world while looking on the one who they've pierced. And I will, I will say more about that when, when we get to it. Once again, another verse that I just try to take out of context. So, listen, you need to make sure you do the same thing. When you're studying the Bible, okay, if you get it in your head that there's an event, you need to ask yourself, is there a clear place in the Scripture that explains this event, or am I just pulling the Scripture here and a Scripture there and creating an event? You can't do that. I was trying to think about this. You know, is, is there any areas where I've done that or people that were, I, I couldn't think of any where we just piece things together and we've created a whole other event? Most of the examples I could think of were with dispensationalists. And they, they do it with Abraham's bosom. They do it with all, you know, all Israel getting saved in the future. Um, yeah, with the sons of God. There, there are no clear places in the scripture that explain certain events. But they have decided these events are true, so they take a verse here, a verse there. And con- that's why I always say context. Context always destroys every one of those things. And I wanted to show you that, to just show you Matthew twenty-three thirty-nine is a verse that they're using to attach to their fairy tale. And they've only got a couple folks that got that one. So all Israel shall be saved. You know, that, they're, that they're, there's not many left. And, um, you know... The all Israel shall be saved. That has already been thoroughly debunked what they're teaching from that. Thoroughly. They are, they are ignoring the clear teaching that's coming from Romans chapter 11. It's because they have to. And very soon, I'm about to do, for the radio program, I'm going to do the final word on Romans 11. I, I'm, I'm done arguing with people on that thing. I'm right on that. And I'm about to do the final word on Romans 11 to finally take that passage away from it once and for all. I just got to make sure they hear it. So, and I will throw it in their face. So, anyway, with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. I pray you'll help us to study it, Lord. I pray you'll help us not to, uh, you know, read these other books and and get fairy tales stuck in our head and then go trying to make the Bible uh, teach those things. And I pray you'll help people that are doing that type of thing to repent of it. I pray that they'll actually take the time to study out these scriptures and do the work that's necessary to uh, find the truth in these things. And I pray you'll help us to uh, just be be vigilant in these things. Help us not to get lazy in our Bible study. Help us be thorough, understanding there's so many great treasures in your word. And I pray we'll try to find all that we can. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead.